you still have to get out and press flesh. You know, right. you got to shake hands, you got to meet people, you got to be face to face, you got to have those conversations with actual people, not just through email. I, I can't really stress that enough. I, I know it made an enormous difference in my career, and, and I think it still does. Welcome to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast with Bree Noble. Bree is a musician, entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of Women of Substance Music Radio and Podcast. Bree's interviews with successful female musicians and industry pros are both inspirational and informational. She also answers your questions about the music business. Bree is on a mission to help you create great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business, and to truly become a female entrepreneur musician. Hey, this is Brie Noble, and I am so glad that you're tuned in to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Show, where we talk about making great music, connecting with your audience, and growing your business. We've got an action-packed episode today. I am so excited for this interview with Nancy Moran. She goes into all the nitty-gritty of her career, and I know that you guys are going to learn a ton from it. You're going to be inspired. It's going to give you so much confidence in your ability to create a music career because she talks about how there's nothing special about her, that she got started late, she you know, struggled just like all of you guys do, just like I did. And there's nothing about her that made it happen for her other than just hard work. But what I'm probably most excited about this interview is that she and her husband, Fett, host a clinic called Empowering Women in Audio. They hosted their first clinic back in April. It was a huge success. Um, friends of mine attended it and they absolutely loved it. They came out of it feeling like they really had a great grasp on how to produce a record, how to mix a record, how to record a record correctly, and all the nitty gritty that you need to know in order to create great sounding audio recordings from home. So this is something that I know that my audience, you guys are going to be super excited about because I know many of you record your music from home and you just want to get better at it so you don't have to pay for a studio or an engineer or a producer. So they are hosting this down in Nashville in late July, which is coming up really, really soon. And they have extended an amazing offer to my audience, which is that they are opening up the early bird special to you guys, even though that's been unavailable for quite a while, which means you'll get $500 off the price. The price is usually $14.97, and you guys will get it for $9.97, which is a huge deal because this is a four-day clinic. It is hands-on. It is very small and intimate. Seven to 10 people, that's it. You get to work directly with a band recording in the studio. And Nancy talks a lot about it near the end of our interview. So if you are interested, definitely stay to the end. Listen to that part and go to our show notes page, which is at femmusician.com slash 102. And that will give you a button that will connect you directly to this special early bird 
$500 off discount that's only available to the listeners of Female Entrepreneur Musician and my audience. So be sure to go to femmusician.com slash 102 or just go to femmusician.com and see this particular podcast with Nancy on the front page. Click on that. You'll be right on the page and you'll be able to access that special discount. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Nancy Moran. Nancy Moran is an independent folk rock Americana singer-songwriter, an artist development coach, and the co-founder of Azalea Music Group in Nashville, Tennessee, where she teaches and mentors artists, writers, composers, and other aspiring music moguls how to design, develop, and pursue their own authentic and profitable music careers. She also recorded and toured as a member of the musical comedy troupe The Four Bitchin' Babes. After playing everything from bars to performing arts centers for more than two decades, she designed her signature ultimate booking and touring online program where she teaches touring musicians and those who want to be how to get their music out to a wider audience by booking more and better paying gigs. At the same time, she opened up her Music Mogul Academy, where she provides customized private coaching on the creative, business, and mindset sides of creating and maintaining a successful music career. Here is my interview with Nancy Moran. So that's a little bit about Nancy Moran. So Nancy, is there anything that our listeners need to know about you that's maybe not in your bio that's a little bit interesting and unique? Well, I don't know if it's interesting and unique, but (laughs) um, I like to tell people a lot that I'm, I really feel like just one of them. Um, I don't have any special superpowers. There was nothing really, and I'm not dissing myself. I'm just saying there's nothing really special about me that put me on this path and made me have these experiences as opposed to someone else. I actually got into music, I consider sort of late in life. I didn't really pick up the guitar until I was in college. And I didn't play my first open mic until sometime in college or right after. And I didn't have my first gig until long after that. So um, I, I, and the only reason that I like to tell people that is because I want them to understand that they can relate to me and they can do anything that I'm talking about can happen for them too. And I I really mean that. That's not just a platitude. That is reality. No, I love that because so many times, you know, people are told, oh, if you haven't made it by age 28, it's over, you know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's that's so ridiculous, especially, honestly, especially in today's music business, that Mm -hmm. all of that stuff is just it's just non-existent anymore. I mean, I know that the major labels are still signing 12-year-olds and things like that, but um, but for the rest of the world. Oh, yeah, not, who needs them, right? We've got our own thing going. You totally don't need the major labels anymore. I, I don't even understand what is enticing about that. I, I think the only thing that's enticing about that is people who are dreaming of being the next Beyonce. Mm. And that's that just was never my goal. That was never my plan. So, uh, you know, uh, maybe that's why I don't really relate to that, especially now. I just think there's so many more opportunities for independent artists out there to really, truly make a living. And that means making money. <laughs> that, right. means, that means making money, people. Um, and you can do it on, in so many different ways. I work with I work with some pretty odd people, and I mean that in the most loving way, uh, <laughs> because I'm an odd person. My career has been very unusual, I think. And um, And yet it's been really interesting and it's been very productive and and very successful, I consider. Mm, 
I love that. So how did you get started in music? What made you pick up that guitar when you were in college? Good question. Um, (laughs) You know, I think what made me pick it up, my parents had actually given me a guitar. um, I think when I was in like junior high or maybe high school and I, you know, played it for three weeks and my fingers hurt. And so I put it away and never played it again. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten that far and given up. (laughs) Oh yeah. Trying to get those calluses, man. It just sucks in the beginning. It just does. Um, So I didn't really think much of it. And I think what actually got me started was when I went to college, there was a girl down the hall from me in the other suite that had her guitar with her and she used to get it out and play all the time. And I remember I went home for Christmas and I thought, gee, that's kind of cool. Maybe I'll take my guitar back to college with me. And I did. And I knew like all of three songs, including, yes, for real, Puff the Magic Dragon. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was sad. It was really sad. I wasn't even good at that one. Um, But I, I took it back and I would, I would never play. I would never take it out unless I was the only one in my room and that my door was closed and there was nobody in the other two rooms in our suite and the suite door was closed. So like I had to be completely by myself. If anybody wow. was in the vicinity, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> How often does that happen in college? Not very often. <laughs> Not very often. Not very often. But that's just, that's just how insecure that I was back then. And, you know, mm. now things are completely different, obviously. <laughs> Obviously. How did you move from that totally insecure musician to actually wanting to get on stage and write songs and all that? You know, it was a really long process for me because um, I loved performing. I've kind of always had that in me, I think. But playing guitar and singing in front of people on a stage just was so nerve wracking to me uh, that the first time the first time I actually got on a stage at an open mic was only after I had been there the whole night with some friends and, you know, had had a couple of beers. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that was the only way I was getting up there. And I think I was the last person to go because I didn't even ask to go until I'd had those couple of beers. Mm. Uh, and for a while, that was really it. I would go to an open mic uh, and I'd have to have one drink. Now I couldn't, I actually couldn't have two or three drinks because then that would put me into a different state and I was not <laughs> capable of playing. Right. But I had to have that one drink to sort of calm my nerves and stop my hands from shaking enough so that I could actually play. And then from that point, that was really my college days. When I got out of college, I started going to some open mics in the D.C. area, which is where I was living at the time, and really just developed a whole lot of friendships with some great people, people that a lot of people I'm still friends with today, to be honest, um, because we were like, we were the gang. We all hung out together. We were always there every Sunday night. And it wasn't until I think, you know, after doing that for quite a while that I started tentatively trying to write some music at home. And again, for my own consumption, nobody heard this stuff. This, that was too weird for me. That was too intimidating to me. So it was a really, really long process. It wasn't until, wow, it wasn't until I, I met Fett, who's now my husband. Um, I think he was like one of the first people I ever played some of my songs for. And even that, even then it was pretty nerve wracking. So I'm assuming during this time you had like a day job and you were just doing this as for fun. <laughs> oh yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to mention that I did not study music in college. In fact, I was so far from that. I studied management information systems, if you can mm. believe that, uh, which is just computers, but not programming. Um, and when I got out of college, I, I actually worked for the executive office of the president, meaning wow. as in like the White House, oh um, and did some boring programming job. And then I moved from that into doing training and documentation with another company. And, you know, so I was, I, I had your typical day job. I was wearing suits and pantyhose and pumps, which to be honest, when I think about that now, feels like I'm remembering somebody else's life because uh-huh. I'm so far from that person. Um, but, it, you know, that's just how I got 
I, I didn't see any other way. I, it never occurred to me when I was going to school that I could study music or, or actually study something that I was interested in. It just never occurred to me. I just, I went to school because that's what you did. And I studied something that would make me a living because that's what you did. Right. Yeah. That's, that's just amazing that you were like, I can't even see how you got from there to here. I just, I got to find out. I'm really curious. <laughs> um, well, I can blame a lot of it on one of the guys that I met at that open mic, Peter Cronowit, who's a really good friend of mine. And he introduced me to Fett, who's now my husband. And, you know, those, those guys had a pretty big influence on me because Fett was the first one uh, when he heard me sing. I, I guess that was part of what he says he fell in love with. I, I didn't buy into that at the time, to be honest, but <laughs> <laughs> that's another story. buttering me up, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but he, he was the first one, I think, that really made me feel like I had something. Mm. You know, so uh, he invited me to start performing with his group that he had with two other guys. I became the chick singer. Mm. And, and that was awesome because I really sucked at playing guitar. I really, really did. And so I didn't have to. <laughs> the boys played for me and I got to be the chick singer. Yay. <laughs> um, and again, we were just doing covers and playing bars, but we were just having a lot of fun. And two of the guys eventually, they were in med school at the time. And so two of the guys eventually became doctors and had to go out and work and just didn't really have time to play anymore. And that left me and Fett to perform. And one thing really just led to another, you know, we were just playing covers and then eventually we incorporated some of my original material. Eventually people started asking if we had a recording and we were like, wow, that's a neat idea. Maybe we should do a cassette. <laughs> How much is that dating me? <laughs> um, and we thought we would do it at home because Fett did have an eight track recorder at home, which was a big deal back then. Mm -hmm. And and then we took a recording class at Omega Institute in uh, Omega Recording Studios, excuse me. They also had a school there, though, in Rockville, Maryland. And when we took the recording class, we took it thinking that we would learn all these great techniques and then go home and record the album. And instead, we decided, let's pay them a lot of money and record here because this mm -hmm. is really cool. So we did my first album and released it in 1991. Um, and somewhere around the time that we released it, we decided that one of us needed to be pursuing this in a more full-time fashion. And I was kind of the obvious choice because I was the songwriter and I made less money than Fett. So mm. I quit my day job in 1991 and I guess the rest is history. Wow. <laughs> so how was that for enough detail? <laughs> That's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's, it's, it, it's amazing me, to me though that you like jumped out and did that and quit your job and all that when it, you know, you were still, I guess you had been building your confidence over these years of, you know, you could do this thing. I had, but I was so green when I left. I mean, huh. Honestly, when I think back on it now, maybe that wasn't the smartest decision. I don't know. <laughs> um, we really had no idea what we were doing. Just none. We, we weren't really gigging yet. Not, not really. Not playing all original music. We weren't. Um, and we really had no inclination at that moment that we were going to leave the D.C. area and go to Nashville or anything like that. I mean, all of those things came later. So it really it was a very long, kind of drawn-out process, I guess. So how did you start doing this, this full-time thing? How did I start? Um, you know, did you start going to get gigs? Did you start shopping your album that you'd created around? I did a little bit of that. But again, I was so green. I really had no idea what I was doing. So I made some pretty, pretty big phone calls that I probably wouldn't make today. <laughs> you know? um, but I think that sometimes ignorance is bliss. Mm. And ignorance can kind of be your friends because if you know too much, you sort of stop yourself. Right. Um, so yeah, I think where I started was gigs. 
uh, there were a bunch of folk venues in the DC area that we had gone to see people play at many, many times. And we, we wanted to have a, what we considered a real gig. Instead of playing at a bar, we were playing mostly covers. Right. We wanted to have a gig of our own where we were playing mostly my music. So I started there. Uh, the Weather Vane in Frederick, Virginia, which is no longer there, um, was one of the first places to book me. And, it, you know, that, that was really it. It was kind of just one foot in front of the other, gigging, and then what's the next step? Hey, you know, one of the weird things, though, now that I'm thinking of it, is once we released that record, it, we really did the record thinking, oh, this is fun. You know, look at this. We, in fact, we made a CD. And back then, a lot of people weren't making CDs. They were making cassettes. Right. And so it was kind of a big deal that ours was packaged in that god-awful long blister pack. Oh, wow. Yeah. Remember, <laughs> I remember those? those? I remember going to Warehouse Records and looking through those big... <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. They, they were awful because you couldn't get into them. I mean, it was like you needed a saw to get uh-huh. through that plastic. <laughs> um, but we really, we didn't think ahead back then. This is, I'm really showing my, my faults and ignorance here. Um, we really didn't think ahead. We didn't think we're going to do the CD and we're going to shop it and we're going to market it and we're going to do all these things. We didn't think about that at all. We just thought this was a cool thing to do and we would have something to sell at gigs. And all of a sudden, people started asking us, well, how are you going to market the CD? And who are you going to market it to? And what are you going to do with it? And, and I was kind of stunned by those questions, to be honest, and almost a little irritated, mm. <laughs> you know, like, why do I have to do anything with it? But I think it's what eventually got our wheels turning. And the CD did open some doors for us because I was able to get reviews with the CD. And I was able to send it to more places to get gigs. And the CD looked sort of impressive. And I was able to talk to uh, publishers, we, we really, one of the things I know we did well back then was we went to every event known to mankind, it seemed like, that at least came to our area. Um, I distinctly remember going to a free WAMA event. That was the Washington Area Music Association. They had a free event on a Sunday afternoon at the Birchmere. And there were a couple of publishers from Nashville there. Christine Lavin was on uh, um, that panel. Um, Sean Colvin's producer, who I can't think of his name right now, that's horrible and fat will kill me. Uh, he, he was on the, the panel, as was Michael Jaworek, who booked the Birchmere. And, you know, these were really big people to us. And we, it was totally free. Mm-hmm. And we, we went, and there were less than 50 people in the audience that Wow. Day. And we thought, what's wrong with people? Why aren't they here? <laughs> you know? Um, and honestly, that was the day that I, I gave everybody on the panel a CD that day. And that was a Sunday. And Monday evening when I got home from work, I had a message from Christine Lavin on my, on my answering machine and it totally changed my life. Truly. Wow. So, you know, that was one of the things that we did was we made sure that we put ourselves out there. We met people. We, you know, I guess the term nowadays is networking. They didn't Uh really call it that back then. But the point is we put ourselves in the position of something being able to happen. Right. Not just sitting at home or hoping someone will find you. Right. Right. Because that's not going to happen. And even in today's day and age where everything seems to happen over the internet, you still have to get out and press flesh. You know, you got to shake hands. You got to meet people. You got to be face to face. You got to have those conversations with actual people, not just through email. I I can't really stress that enough. I know it made an enormous difference in my career and and I think it still does. Mm. So. No, that's a great point. So yeah, that was the next question I was going to ask you was what, you know, what event kind of pushed you to the next level in your career? And it sounds like, um, you know, Christine Lavin's call was a big deal. 
it was a huge deal. Uh, Christine, for, for people who don't know her, it, she's like folk goddess in the folk world. Um, and she's also sort of a fairy godmother. She's helped an awful lot of people. Uh, Julie Gold, who wrote the song From a Distance. Christine Lavin was the one who got that song to Bette Midler and Nancy Griffith. And mm. it, it has completely made Julie Gold's career. Um, and there's just a ton of other people. Christine is just one of these very selfless individuals that's always promoting someone else besides herself. She's put together numerous different compilation CDs and gone on tours with lots of different groups. And she was the one who started the Four Bitchin' Babes. So getting to know Christine, having her call me on the phone, and she, she just started like spewing things on my answering machine about, you know, and call this person and call that person and tell them that I said this. And she's just a fountain of information and, and very giving. And, and she was really instrumental in, in things just completely changing. However, I will say that was 1991 and the first time I did a gig with the babes was I think it was 1999. Wow. So it's not like it happened overnight, (laughs) right? Which most of them, I mean, most of these things don't, you know, it's developing relationships over time. Exactly. That's exactly what it was, but there's no question that meeting Christine, giving her my CD and then getting that reaction from her was completely instrumental. No question. Mm. Very cool. Yeah. So we have a lot of struggling artists listening to the show. What, you know, what advice or what kind of story can you tell from that time period where you were building your career that like, maybe you just felt like, oh my gosh, this isn't working. I'm ready to give up. And then, you know, why didn't you, and what did you learn from it? Well, this is an interesting question because honestly, I did give up. I, uh. I totally got to that point and I said, I quit. And the reason that I got to that point was, this was 1998. I Oh, I remember this like it was yesterday, unfortunately, because it was not a good moment. Um, A lot of things had been happening. A lot of struggles had been happening and things weren't moving the way that I wanted or as quickly as I wanted. And I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like I was making progress anymore. But the clincher was that I started working with a woman who really was an artist herself, but claimed that she wanted to be a booking agent. Mm. And we had several talks And, you know, I was like any artist is I wanted a booking agent. I didn't want to do my own booking. I hated doing booking. And so I thought this was a dream come true. Here was someone who, as an artist, I figured she understood what it was that I was looking for. And she wanted to do booking. That's what she wanted to do. So I thought this is fantastic. And I also thought she's just starting out so I can train her the way that I want her to work. And so that's what I thought I did. I gave her a list of questions that said, when you call a place, if I have not given you a place to call, because I, I actually fed her a bunch of places that I knew I wanted to play. But I said, if you call someplace that's not on my list, then you ask these five questions, let's say. And if the answers are this, that, and the other thing, then you say, thank you very much for your time. And you hang up the phone and you move on because that's not the type of place that I want to play. And she didn't do any of that. <laughs> so the clincher was that my husband and I, who were playing as a duo at the time, drove from Nashville, Tennessee to Madison, Wisconsin. Oh my gosh. Yep. And we made $17. Whoa. And the only reason we made $17 is because the guy that we were, quote, splitting the gig with felt sorry for us and gave us the whole take instead of taking half like he should have. Wow. Um, that was kind of the beginning of the end. We, we had some other gigs on that tour in Wisconsin, one of which we showed up to and the woman asked me if I had a sound system to which I replied no because we didn't travel with one back then. And I had been very specific with this agent Mm -hmm. woman that we didn't. So there was no sound system for the gig. And that was her fault and her mistake. Now we turned that one from lemons into lemonade because we did kind of a house concert thing where we played completely acoustic and the people at the gig loved it. Mm. 
but it was annoying enough to me that that she didn't ask the right questions and she didn't uh, arrange for a PA. That it was just, you know, one other thing that kind of put a nail in the coffin. So I came home and I fired her. And at that point, there were just enough other things going on that I was crying a lot because I was very unhappy. Mm. And I said to Fett, you know, I told myself that when music wasn't fun anymore, I wouldn't do it. And it wasn't fun anymore. So I quit. Now, that's the long, horrible, gory detail part of the story. The great news is that quitting was the best thing I ever did. Mm. I personally feel that sometimes you have to take a step back. I think I had gotten very out of touch with myself and why I was doing music and where I wanted to go with music and what music meant to me and all of those things. And things were just very confusing. And I think I was doing a lot of shoulds. Everybody else was doing it this way. I must have to do it this way. And I followed along and none of those things worked for me. (laughs) Go figure. Uh, Of course, they didn't work for me because that was not my path. It wasn't supposed to be my path. And I just didn't know that yet. So I quit and I stopped doing music um, for quite a while. But it was in 1999 when I got the first call from my friend Sally Fingerette of the Four Bitchin' Babes asking me to come do a sub gig with them. So here I was at home in Nashville, quote unquote, not playing music anymore. (laughs) When, When I basically got the biggest gig of my career to that point. And I think it was all because I really had to get clear on what it was that I wanted and, and how I was going to do that. Mm, I love that. I love that story. And I do think that sometimes you do have to quit to get perspective. Yeah, I, I like that story too, but it sort of shocks people sometimes when <laughs> I say, you know, just quit. And they're like, what? <laughs> but no, it's, not, it's not for everybody maybe, but, but honestly, I, I also kind of remember uh, my acting teacher in high school saying, if I, if I tell you to quit acting and you do, then you should never have been an actor. Mm. And it's kind of the same thing here. If I tell you to quit and you fight me on that, then good. And if you don't, then maybe you need to quit for a while. Right. Yeah, right. I, I, I don't have a problem with it. I think sometimes you do. I mean, I definitely, it, it's that or burnout sometimes. And exactly. if you burn out on it, then you're going to give it up altogether. And I think that's actually where I was. I think I was burned out. I just didn't know it. Yep. You know, for so, sure. Yeah. So as we were talking about that, that whole booking nightmare that you had <laughs> with the women, <laughs> like what, is, what is your opinion? Do you think indie artists should be doing their own booking? Or do you think that eventually, you know, as they grow, they should get other people to do these things? Or is it just so much easier to do it yourself? Because you don't know what they're going to be saying and doing in your stead. I think 150%, especially in the beginning, that artists need to do their own booking. Nobody wants to hear that. I know <laughs> that. Nobody wants to hear that. Everybody hates it. Um, including myself. Um, But I think it's the only way to really understand the business and to really understand your career, to really understand what is appealing to an audience, what is appealing to to a venue, what's appealing to a promoter. How are you getting these gigs? What's important to focus on and what is kind of extraneous? I think for a lot of artists, it sort of feels like magic, you know, some, or, or, or worse yet, I think it seems easy to them, like not for them personally, but they think that there are people in the world who are booking agents who it's really easy. They just pick up the phone and they call the venue and they get them a gig. So why don't they just do that? And it's not easy for anyone. And I think it's so critical that artists understand that. And I just think they get a, a much better understanding of, of how any, everything functions and then what is marketable and what it is that you need to work on maybe to make yourself more marketable. Now, all of that being said, um, you know, there's a big DIY push and I'm all for do it yourself, but do it yourself doesn't mean do it all by yourself. Mm-hmm. 
So I think at some point you do get to a level in your career where you could hand those skills off to somebody else. I also think that's the only way you're ever going to attract a booking agent or a manager is really when you don't need them. (laughs) You know, you have to get to a point where you have enough business that it makes sense for them to take over for you. So I think that's true. I mean, for me, like when I got to the point where I didn't have to be calling out because I was getting enough people contacting me through being on my email list or, you know, friend of a friend or referrals and all that. That's when I think having a booking agent would make sense because they could expand me into markets I didn't have control of already. Exactly. Totally. Exactly. So yeah, I think you should start by doing it and then always be open to someone else taking that over and taking it farther than you can by yourself. Because without a doubt, somebody else can can help you go further when there's more people. I mean, you're going to need a team at some point. And this seems to be a sticking point for a lot of people is they're just starting out and they think they need the team right then and there. And I know it feels like you need a team right then and there because you don't know a lot, but you don't get the team until later. So you need to start by teaching yourself and by making the effort yourself and doing what you can, but also asking for help along the way. There are There are people who will help you. Your fans will help you if you ask them. Your friends and family might might think it's really cool to help you because they don't have the talent that you do, but they'd love to be a part of it. Oh yeah, they're your biggest fans. I mean, that's I definitely did that. I had my mom help me with booking for a while just because like, you know, the way she talked about me was never the way I would talk about myself. And, you know, she made me sound cooler than I am. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Which is great, you know? Right. Um, and, And sometimes it's just a matter of, maybe you do certain tasks, but there are other tasks that you can let go of. Somebody can help you with your newsletter. Someone can help you with your social media. Um, You might hire a publicist for a period of time. You don't have to have them on retainer necessarily, Um, but someone might help you with a particular PR push, things like that. So there are ways that you can utilize other people and sort of create your team on the fly until you actually are at the point where you can hire a team. Yeah, definitely. Definitely do it slowly for sure. Yeah. yeah. So having done the booking yourself back in the day and having, you know, you, I know you now have a course about booking and you help independent artists learn how to do it. Have you seen any like changes, like big sweeping changes in the booking of independent artists in the last 25 years? And I know, I know one of them maybe maybe house concerts because I know you've mentioned that and I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. Right. I, there's been enormous changes in booking and touring. And I think it's one of the reasons why I'm so adamant about people doing their own booking is because I think there are so many opportunities out there now for people to play music. And I think way outside the box, one of, one of I think, my specialties, especially in my course, is I don't talk just about listening rooms and house concerts and bars and restaurants and music venues and even performing arts centers that we typically think of for playing music. Um, I think of doing corporate events or association gigs or maybe playing at schools and libraries or nursing homes and retirement communities. I mean, I've got a very good friend who's making his entire living by playing retirement homes and nursing communities, and he's having a blast. I mean, Mm. you might not have heard of him, and he doesn't care because he's making a living doing exactly what he wants, playing music. And so there's a gazillion different places out there for people to play music. You just have to expand your concept of what your career might look like and what a gig might look like. And these aren't all cover gigs either. So I don't, I don't want people to think, yeah, but that's like a bar gig and, you know, I have to play cover tunes. Some of them they are, um, but not all of them. A, a lot of, Jana Stanfield's a great case in point. She's the one who really started, initiated the concept of keynote concerts. Mm. She started playing her own original music at like a conference. She would be the keynote speaker. And instead of 
making a point and telling a story to make that point, she would make her point and sing a song and make her point and sing a song and make her point and sing a song. And that was unique. Nobody else was doing it. Now there's a bazillion people out there doing it. But the point is she was making a really good amount of money, not only getting paid for the gig, but back of the room sales. She sold hundreds of thousands of CDs and I'm not exaggerating. Wow. On her own. She didn't, she was the record label. So do the math. (laughs) That's a lot. Okay. Um, So that's why I'm kind of passionate, I think, about booking and getting people to do their own booking and getting them out on the road. I think it's so important for everyone's musical message to be out there. Uh, And I really mean this. I think now more than ever, everyone's musical message needs to be heard. There's an audience for you out there. Even in the smallest niche, there is an audience for you. You just need to go out there and find it. Yeah, I love I love that. I I've, I always say there's a corner of the market for everyone, and totally. so many artists have this like this fear or this scarcity mentality that like if somebody else gets a gig, then that means that's one less gig <laughs> I get. You know? Yeah, that's so far from the truth. It's just so far from the truth. I, I've never ever had that attitude my entire career. Uh, I've been very open and free with information with people, um, and I have been that way my my entire career. And maybe that's. Maybe that's because Christine was like that with me originally. Maybe that's where I learned it from. But it sure didn't hurt her career, and it certainly hasn't hurt mine. There's definitely an audience for everyone out there, and there's room for everyone to succeed. I totally agree. Yeah. So I know you, you coach artists and you work on artist development, which, which I do somewhat as well. So I was curious um, in your experience, because this has definitely played a part for me, is how much do you think of what, what holds artists back is related to mindset versus like ability or... I, th- I think it's 90% mindset, if not more. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. Yeah, I, I mean, I know a ton. I mean, I live in Nashville. I am surrounded by talented people, surrounded. Everybody around me is talented and, and off the scales talented, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet a lot of them aren't, aren't doing music full time or aren't doing what they want to do with their music or feel trapped or feel like nobody gets them or, you know, there's a bazillion things that they, that they think about themselves. And it's all, it's all mindset because talent is definitely not what's holding them back. And the interesting thing that I found through my own career and working with people and with working with my clients is, and this was sort of surprising when this first came to me, is it sort of across the board, like the mindset issues that people have, everyone has them. Yeah. Everybody thinks it's their own thing. Like, I'm the only one who thinks this way. I'm, I'm the only one that, that they don't get or whatever. And that's not true. What I find is that I work on the same issues with people over and over and over again. And I hear the same mindset limiting beliefs from, from everyone. I have them myself. I still have to work on limiting beliefs. And it doesn't matter what level you get to. Working with people in the babes, uh, they were at a much higher level when I came in. They still had the same issues that I did. I was stunned by that. Um, we've worked with people who are really significant in our studio. Uh, I've met some incredible performers with big names who've won Grammys. And yet, you know what? They all still have their insecurities and their issues. It doesn't go away. So it's important to me that people understand you're not alone. This isn't only you who's feeling this way. And there are ways around it. There are ways to get past that and to make them not hold you back. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest reason that I built the Academy as, as a community, because that, you know, I experienced that, like, I thought that I was the only one having these issues. And then when I found a community of women, and I found out, okay, these people are dealing with it, too. And this is how they dealt with it. And, you know, and that's what I hope that a community of women can do together is, is, you know, number one, just make you feel like I'm not crazy. Like, this is normal. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I always found it kind of interesting, when I'd be talking with a client, and they would share some some mindset issue or some, maybe even a particular scenario and the way that they handled it. 
or the way that they feared it or whatever. And I would tell them in response to that, I would say, oh yeah, I totally get that. And I would tell them my own experience that was exactly the same thing. <laughs> it, that was almost like a surefire way to get them over it. It was like what they really needed to get over was the fact that it was just them. And, right. and they go, they go, really? You did? And I was like, yeah, hello. <laughs> of course I did. I'm a creative person like you. We all feel this way. And you could almost feel like the world being lifted off of their shoulders mm -hmm. in that moment. You know, it's crazy, but I totally get it. Support is something that I don't think people give enough credit to. Like, again, I said this earlier, DIY doesn't mean you have to do it all by yourself. And in this day and age, with everything being done over the internet, and we're all on Facebook, we're doing everything virtually instead of in person, blah, blah, blah. I think it's even more important that we have support around us because we're all sitting at home in what Fett and I like to call the silo effect. Because we're all in our studios, or we're all in our living room, we're writing all by ourselves. <laughs> yeah, we're re recording all by ourselves. And we're booking all by ourselves. And we're making phone calls and trying to get to music libraries and music supervisors all by ourselves. And we're trying to watch YouTube videos to figure out how to do it all by ourselves. We're doing everything alone. And eventually that really wears you down. And just having some sort of support. I don't care if it's a coach or mentor or a community group of support, whatever it is, whatever works for you. I can't stress enough how important that is to your, your career and your expansion. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are clearly kindred spirits on this one because <laughs> obviously a big push for me is, is all about community and, and helping each other and supporting each other. And it's a great segue into this um, discussing your upcoming event, which I love because of course it is in, in person, like it's not virtual. We're actually going to be actually going to be in a room together <laughs> right. and learning together. But this um, empowering women in audio clinic, you know, tell us a little bit about that. Why did you guys create this and why specifically for women? Well, um, interesting couple of stories, I think around that. It came up because Fett and I were getting ready for a particular conference that we go to every year, and we were talking about what we wanted to teach um, at that conference and trying to decide whether we want to do something new. And Fett was sitting across the table from me, and he says to me, well, I've had this idea, and it's either really brilliant or the worst idea I've ever had. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I'm intrigued now. What is it? And he told me that he was thinking about doing a production clinic just for women. And I knew instantly that it was brilliant. I just, mm. I just knew to my core that it was brilliant. And so then we started talking about it. And the way, that, the way that he came up with it really was in watching some of his own clients that he had worked with over the year. He had one client in particular who, when he started working with her, said to him clearly, I don't know anything about this recording stuff. You know, she just, and she was very down on herself about it too. Like she wasn't even sure she could learn it, which is really an interesting comment. Mm. And, and of course, Fett knew differently. He knew that of course she could. And so he consulted with her and she took a bunch of his recording and mixing classes and things that he has online. And, and he watched her progress over time. And he also really watched her confidence build. She went from this person who thought, you know, oh, I can't do that to now she's actually recording and producing records for other people and those records are getting noticed. Wow. So she, she just, she flourished. And Fett said to me, you know, I think there's something to this. I think, I think women think differently. I think that they, that they do kind of feel insecure around, um, around the topic, mostly because if you go to a class on recording or mixing, especially if it's in person, guess what? It's mostly guys in the room. Uh-huh. And this is no offense to guys, okay? It really isn't. We are, we are not male bashing here by any stretch of the imagination. But guys, um, guys were brought up differently. So guys don't have any trouble speaking up. They don't have any trouble asking a question. And 
in doing those things that they do in a guy-like fashion, they sometimes make women feel intimidated. I honestly don't think that they do it on purpose sometimes. I think it's just a masculine thing. And I think that female energy can feel sort of overpowered mm. sometimes. And so I think that's why we came up with this idea was to have an in-person clinic where it's just women as the students. Now, the cool thing to me is it's not taught by a woman. It's taught by Fett. I'm, I'm a part of it, and I'll get to that in a second, but he's the main teacher. He's the recording guru guy. He's the one doing the teaching. And we take one song from beginning to end, from pre-production to recording to mixing to mastering all the way through to the end. And guess what? The guys doing the recording, the band that comes in, they're all guys. <laughs> and the reason for that is, in reality, women are going to have to work with men in the studio. It's just going to come up. And so we wanted this to be real world. We wanted to talk to women about why they feel a certain way around men in the studio. And we wanted to give them skills and techniques and the words maybe even to deal with them, to talk with them um, and be able to, to flourish themselves in the studio as a producer or engineer, or maybe even just as an artist. Cause we actually talk about all of it. Um, I will say my big part in the clinic is that I am the artist. So it's my song that we're, recording all the way through. And the reason for that is I'm the one who has to sit there in front of all of these people and play my parts and sing my parts. And you want to talk about intimidating? <laughs> I've been doing this for a lot of years. Okay. I've recorded four of my own CD. So I've been in the studio before, but try to sing a vocal with seven women and an engineer staring at you through the glass. It's a mm. tad intimidating. All right. So we didn't want to put anybody else through that. Uh, I think that's only fair. We want the women to be focused on, on the production end of things. Um, but the, probably the coolest thing that came out of this entire process, which I think we were hoping for, but we couldn't really imagine until we did one, and we did one this past April, um, was, the, was the synergy that happened in the room with all these women. When you get women in a room like that, and it's just women, they are able to feel more comfortable with themselves. They are able to ask the questions that maybe they wouldn't ask if there were a bunch of guys in the room. They were very supportive. They instantly became their own little special clique. And I mean that in a good way. Um, and this, uh, this community happened. It sort of took on a life of its own, to be honest. And I have absolutely no doubt that the people that were in our first clinic will remain friends for, for life because it was, that, it was that life-changing, I think, for all of us, including me and Fett. Wow, that is that is very cool. I love that. And I mean, it's just kind of a, a bigger version of what I do with the Academy. I mean, the same thing as what you said, like they're much more likely to ask the real questions and not be intimidated if it's a, a group of women on a Zoom call and not there's no mixed company whatsoever. Absolutely. I, I'm, I wish that was something, this is just me personally, I, I really wish that at women, as women, we could get over that. I really wish that we could feel powerful enough on a daily basis to be who we are exactly as we are and ask and say whatever it is that we're thinking at that moment and not be worried so much about how it looks or what other people might think. Um, I wish we could get to that point. And I, I hope that that's the direction that we're all going. But I do think reality is we have generations of, of DNA mm -hmm. <laughs> and that we're really trying to overcome, uh, generations of upbringing uh, that I think we still need to get past. So I think right now it still is really super beneficial to just get women together and let us feel comfortable enough to do those things together. Especially in, in the production and, and engineering realm, because there really aren't, I mean, I can count maybe on two hands of the women that I know that are really solid, you know, recording and producers of their own music. 
Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. Now, the cool thing is we're starting to see a lot more of that, like FET's starting to see a lot more female students come through his classes. So that's cool and interesting. And we're hoping for more of that as an industry. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the reality still is that even in the music business as a whole, we are still the minority. Yep. And I'm definitely trying to support that on the show. I mean, I've had um, April Kelly on here and I've had, um, let's see who else. I know I'm going to be having Katie Marie on here, who is a, an amazing producer. And I'm going to be talking with um, Darcy Javens, who is starting a whole podcast about female mixing engineers. So I right. love to see this trend. But yeah. um, so what's, what are all the logistics? Like how many days is this? Like, is it totally hands-on? They're not just watching the whole time? It, it, it is, it is somewhat hands-on, although there's, um, a lot of it does sort of happen as they're watching, but they get to stop any time in the process to ask a question. So when we're in the middle of recording, you know, after the take is, is done, they're asking the session guys, you know, uh, what about this? Or uh, they're, they're participating in producing. When, when we're trying to decide what to do with the song, they're giving suggestions of how to do arrangements or, or how fast the song should be. So there's, there's participation. They're not necessarily touching the board just for logistics. Um, but honestly, when Fett is able to have them do that, he's always, he has them move mics. He has them touch the faders. You know, he tries to get them involved as much as is humanly possible. Um, in the first clinic, we had seven people. We, we specifically limited and are limiting it to 10 people or less, mostly for physical space reasons, but also because we really do want every single person to be able to participate. And we felt that by the time we get to 10 or over 10 people, it's getting just a little too unwieldy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that seven to 10 range is really the sweet spot. We could tell that by the, by the first one. So, um, so it's really ex- exclusive and I think just a completely unique experience. I know everybody says that, but I, I got to say, this is really an interesting, it's an experience. It's not just a class that you're taking. It's, it's a whole vibe. It's a whole experience. And I think that's what's really cool about it. So they're, they're basically learning to make decisions. They're not learning which buttons to push and, you know, all that and like all the, you know, how to use the software as much as just how I would make a decision as an engineer or as producer. Yeah, although, you know, Fett gets very, very technical. I mean, he can geek out with the best of them. Um, but I let him do the geeky stuff. <laughs> um, so he definitely teaches, I mean, the, the joke with the first clinic was that everybody had questions about compression. Mm. And so he had this, you know, they kept waiting for the day about compression. And it was kind of became this big joke. And they did actually talk about compression. Um, and Michelle Lockie, who was in the first clinic, now says that she un- finally understands compression, which is so funny. So he talks a lot about why you would do things, how to think as a producer. And definitely he talks about the technical aspects of the recording. He talks like they do a lot of mic placement where they physically show mic placement. And he talks about what would be different. He talks about EQ settings. He, I mean, there's just so much. It's, it's hard to even. Yeah. That's always one that eluded me is the EQ part. I mean, compression too, but like yeah. EQ, I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. So that, yeah, yeah that sounds like it would answer a lot of questions. It does. For any of us that try to record at home. Right. Absolutely. And that's what it's intended for. It's intended for people who are doing their own recording because so many of us are these days. You almost have to. Yep. Um, but it's not, um, it's not software specific. So it doesn't matter what you use at home. He talks in general terms because every DAW has their version of whatever it is that FET's doing. And in most cases, just because he knows all of the software, in most cases, he can even tell you. If, if he's doing it in Cubase, he can tell you how it's done in Pro Tools and he can tell you how it's done in Logic. And, mm, and, and if not, they'll figure it out together. I mean, if somebody needs help with that, he'll help you figure that out. Um, but in most cases, the participants, at least so far, knew well, when he was talking about a particular technique and it was done this way in Cubase, somebody in the class would say, oh yeah, in Logic, you do blah. This, okay. You know. So it, everything translates. 
And he did that very specifically because he didn't want this to be a Pro Tools class or Cubase class. It's not about knowing a particular piece of software. It's knowing about the process and the steps that it takes to create a great recording. Yeah, for sure. I love yeah. that you guys are doing this. So the yep. date is July 27th That's through the 30th. Right. So it's four days and it, it really truly is all four days. We ask that participants arrive the night before and don't leave until the next day because we go nine to six all four days. Wow. And it's in Nashville. Right? It's in Nashville. It's here in our studio in Nashville and we'll give people uh, all of the information that they need once once they're coming. Um, but you can go to our website, azaleamusic.com, uh, to find a link to it. Or you can go directly to empoweringwomeninaudio.com. And that will take you directly to an information page all about the clinic and how you can sign up. Perfect. And I will have a, uh, a link on our show notes here that will oh, give you guys a special deal. So I'll, I don't know what it is yet, but it's going to be great. So I'll let you know um, at the beginning of this podcast before it airs, you'll know what the special deal is for all the listeners of the Female Entrepreneur Music yeah, Podcast. Yeah, ab- absolutely. We're going we're gonna to make a very special deal for your listeners. Cool. So thank you so much for just delving into all this awesome information about your music career and um, all the things that you guys are doing. Where is it best for people to find information about you as a musician? Um, well, really, as a musician, I do have my own website, nancymoran.com. Um, but I'm not touring much these days. I came off the road in 2012 and, and mostly focusing on being an artist development coach. Although yeah, we're kind of I mean, in the same boat on that one too. I'm, I'm kind yeah. of like a little bit retired, but yeah, well, travel isn't as, as glamorous as people think that it is. Yep. <laughs> um, although, Hey, if somebody wants to have me for a house concert, I'm open. So, um, but you can mostly find everything you need to know about me and FET and our company and everything that we're doing really on azaleamusic.com. That's azalea like the flower. So it's A-Z-A-L ea music.com and everything else kind of links from there you can find us on on facebook too but uh, go to our website first and everything will link from there perfect thank you so much for lending all your wisdom and experience and i know that all the listeners are gonna they're gonna learn so much from this but not only that it's gonna help them remember that they're not alone the stuff that they're going through we've all gone through that and we may you know nancy may look like she's amazingly successful but she had low times too just like you guys may be going through right now so you know as she said at the beginning which i love what you said like you know I'm not special. I could, anyone could do what I did. I love that. Right. It's, and it's true. I'm not dissing myself. It's just, it's, it's reality. You know? And thank you so much, Brie, for everything that you do. You have an amazing, you've, you've managed to uh, assemble an amazing community of women here. And I, I love that. I love like-minded people gathering together and supporting each other. And you have really just provided them with so much information on so many different levels. So thank you very much for doing that. And I'm honored that you asked me to be here today. Thank you so much. Oh, you are welcome. Now go out and make great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business. Female Entrepreneur Musician has been brought to you by femusician.com and femalemusicianacademy.com. With editing by Jen Eads of 317 Sound Design and music by Stella Ronson.